At Enterprise, we know you're constantly on the move. Getting this. Thanks, Mom. Fixing that. You reach a destination. And then it's on to the next. And when life is moving at the speed of, well, life, Enterprise is right there with you, around the corner and around the globe. We'll keep you moving forward. Enterprise, for lives in drive. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Meanwhile, closer to home, let's talk about some of the chaos we saw on BC ferries on the weekend. Wow. The busiest, one of the busiest travel weekends of the year with the Victoria Day long weekend. What a time for the BC Ferries website to crash. Yeah, the app went down too. Their phone system was down for hours yesterday. The travelers trying to get information about the ferry system on one of the busiest travel days of the year. And it was difficult for a lot of people. Got Jim Abrams standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen to this report here. This is Global News reporter Kamal Karamali. You will also hear the voice of BC Ferry spokesperson Deborah Marshall. This morning, trying to access my uh, my check-in details to get on the ferry, I uh, wasn't able to access it. Except they weren't able to check schedules, routes, or sailing conditions. The website back up late afternoon, nine hours after going down. I mean, I- didn't expect it. It is very poor timing. BC Ferries didn't seem to have an answer on why it was caught unprepared. Why wasn't there a mitigation plan for something like this? Unfortunately, this issue did crop up. We weren't expecting it. (laughs) No, they weren't expecting the website to crash and the phone app to go down and their phones to get shut down. Uh, They did restore service later in the day, but man, that was a pretty chaotic day on the ferries. Meanwhile, take a look at some of the service on Bowen Island. Boy, residents there unhappy with cancellation of sailings on the weekend. Let's discuss it all with my guest now, Jim Abram. Jim is a former director, elected director for the Discovery Islands, and he is a longtime fierce advocate for an improved ferry service in BC, especially for ferry-dependent communities like the one where he lives. Hey, Jim, thanks for coming on today. Hey, Mike, it's great talking to you again. Yeah, it really is great to have you back. So let's talk about the situation here on the weekend. So we see the BC Ferries website go down, the app crashes, the phones were shut down for many hours, one of the busiest travel days of the year. What do you think of that? What are your thoughts? Hey, hey, BC Ferries has met with us for years at our ferry advisory committees, and they're uh, constant whining about the fact that their uh, IT service is absolutely abysmal. They have not been able to fix it in at least five years. It still doesn't work. And with the technology out there, I mean, they should get a bunch of 14-year-olds out there <laughs> and take care of it, for good, goodness sake. This is what are some ridiculous. Of the pro- what are some of the problems with it? I have no idea. I mean, why in this day and age they can't keep a corporation of that size, can't keep all of their IT stuff working? all the time is way beyond me. I mean, you can call anybody else in the world and you can get uh, fairly consistent IT work. Um, But, you know, our biggest problems are, you know, this is our marine highway 
And we absolutely cannot depend on that highway anymore with breakdowns, breakdowns on brand new vessels that we paid gazillions of dollars for. We have crewing shortages across the board. Um, And that's not the crew's fault. You know, that's BC Ferry's fault. It's a nationwide problem. But why didn't they react to this sooner? Like at the time of COVID, perhaps they could have started uh, could have started offering all the incentives they're talking about now, uh, which is, you know, too little, too late. Um, these daily breakdowns are killing us. Uh, people cannot defend, depend on getting to work, getting to school, getting to appointments. It's just not happening. We've got people on Bowen Island saying, hey, they're going to move off. Well, that's starting to happen on all the islands. They can't do their business and they can't make their appointments. So what are they going to do? They're going to have to go where they can. That's terrible that okay. uh, uh, something like a ferry service could screw up an island. Well, speaking of Bowen Island, yeah, we saw lots of cancellations on BC Ferries sailings to and from Bowen Island over the long weekend, frustrating residents there. Let's have a listen to one of the Bowen Island residents speaking out here. This is Tamson Miley speaking to Global News. Let's listen. Those on Bowen Island were also caught off guard when the Saturday afternoon sailings were suddenly cancelled, leaving many stranded with no information. People were very confused. The sheer number of people who were desperately trying to get off the island, as well as the sheer number of people who were trying to get home, was was quite, quite chaotic. Okay, speaking to ferries advocate Jim Abram about some of the problems we saw on the BC ferries on the weekend. So, Jim, t- tell me a little bit about that, like, cancelled sailings. Like, you know, yesterday... Uh, along with all these other cancellations and, and breakdowns, et cetera. You know, we've got the uh, two ferry service, which we fought hard for for years. We've got two ferries going back and forth between Campbell River and Quadra Island. And yesterday, all of the ferries were shut down because there was a stalled car on the ramp for over an hour and a half. Now, give me a break. There's a you know dozen tow trucks within minutes that could have towed that vehicle off of there, and they didn't. So, wow. you know, all these people are completely inconvenienced and hampered by the fact that, that uh, somebody's stuck on a ramp. That's ridiculous. Um, what's, what's changed? You know, we supposedly had a government saying, oh, we're going to get rid of the ferry corporation, Oregon promising they're going to tear up the Coastal Ferry Act. Never did it. So what is BC Ferries service these days? Supposedly government run, still has two boards, still has an executive, uh, still has, you know, total dysfunction. And we've got the commissioner, the commissioner, supposedly independent, offering a nine plus percent increase annually for a service we don't get. Give me a break. Let's talk. So then the government comes along and yeah. says, oh, well, we're going to make it 3% annually. I think there's a bit of collusion there. You tell them 9, we'll tell them 3, we'll be the good guys. Okay, let's talk a little bit about those fares, Jim. Like, how would you describe the fares right now, especially for people who depend on the fares on a regular basis, like in the community where you live? What are the fares like? Well, the fares are going up regularly. We're paying, we're paying fares to ride the ferry at the same time that we're paying the subsidy to the government that they give to the ferries, 
through our taxes. So we're paying for the ferry two times every time we get on it. Um, that is not right. This should, this should be treated just like the inland ferries, the freshwater ferries. They're free, and they're run through the Ministry of Transportation and Highways. That's where our marine highway needs to be, back in that Ministry of Transportation and funded accordingly. We don't need contractors out there saying, you know, we can't do it, we can't do this, we can't do that. Um, if you had your bridges or your roads arbitrarily closed because, oh, we had a staffing shortage, oh, we had a breakdown, give me a break once again. Uh, those kinds of things, people would not put up with it. But we have to put up with it. All the people on all the islands, including Vancouver Island, um, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a huge number of people. It's 30% of the gross domestic product of this province being hampered by ineptness of government to run a ferry system. It's a bus. Would, would you say... Sake. Would you say that when you talk about comparing BC ferries to British Columbia's highway system, and you'd like to see this brought back under the control of the Ministry of Transportation directly, are you saying like the ferry system should be considered the same as a highway system that should be free to use? It, uh, whether it's free or not is another discussion, but it should be under highways. It is yeah. a highway. It is just the same as pavement, terrestrial highway. It's marine highway. It joins two terrestrial points, and people depend on making that crossing, and they can't depend on it anymore because of breakdowns and staff shortages and all of the other reasons that, you know, Ferries comes up with for not sailing. These are brand new vessels, for goodness sake, Michael. Yeah. And, and they are breaking constantly, daily. They're breaking, not, not once in a while. It's every day. What difference, what difference would it make if BC Ferries was brought back into the ministry's control, like a regular Crown Corporation like it was in the past? How would that, how would that make a difference? I mean, you still got to run the boats on time and, and get people to where they need to go, no matter what the governance structure is, right? Like, how would that make it a difference if it was brought back under into the ministry? Well, then you'd see the same kind of service provided as you see on your highways. What happens when a rock falls down on the road and crushes it? And, uh, you know, uh, the highway crews are there immediately to fix it. Uh, so the same kind of thing would be happening with BC ferries. Anything happens that disrupts the flow of traffic is going to be dealt with immediately. And that's what happens, what needs to happen under a ministry as opposed to uh, the way it's being done now through, I don't even know what BC ferries is anymore. You know, supposedly yeah. the government <laughs> took it over. Um, and we've, we've still got these couple of boards and an executive and, uh, you know, Joy McPhail doing whatever she's doing. And uh, we've got a new guy running the uh, show that Mark Collins used to do quite well, actually. And uh, it's just not working. Do they you think have failed? Do you think that 
we've seen seen reports of some people in Bowen Island here just throwing their hands up, just fed up with some of the the service disruptions like we saw on the weekend of canceled fail, sailings, people stranded, and some people saying, you know what, I think I'm just might move move off this island like forget about relying on this ferry system anymore are you hearing that as well from people in ferry dependent other ferry dependent communities <laughs> i'm hearing it here on quadra island i'm hearing it on cortez island people are doing it people are moving they're saying you know we can't put up with this anymore and then i'm hearing back from those people that have moved over to say vancouver island or lower, lower mainland or whatever and they say you know what it's great. We don't have to depend on the ferry anymore because we couldn't depend on the ferry. So now we are actually able to go to a doctor's appointment that we've had scheduled for a year to see a specialist. And now we can go to that doctor's appointment and know we're going to get there. Okay. We don't get that with ferry service. We don't get our ambulance service at night anymore. They canceled that. So, you know, that golden hour of getting somebody to a hospital no longer exists. It can't happen. Jim Abram, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Michael, and take you care. You bet. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina, and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music, and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie, and Wrightsville, and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. I feel good. Dad, are you singing to your cereal? Yes, I am. Like I knew that I would. No, a dance too? Come on, Ava. Silk almond milk. Starts the morning on a high note. Yow! Songs, dances, and dad jokes. So good. So good. I got you. Silk almond milk. With calcium, vitamins A, D, and E. Feel plenty good. All right. Let's talk about this safe snorting kit that was brought into a BC high school. Now, this happened on Vancouver Island. The school district now has launched an investigation. Uh, they say there was a harm reduction and drug addiction presentation at the school. It was done by an outside third party, and someone left behind a safe snorting kit which includes drug paraphernalia, including straws. There is a, a card in there to chop up your cocaine, an instruction booklet on how to safely snort drugs. Are you kidding me? How How does this get into a BC high school? It's part of a presentation. I've got John Rustad standing by. First, have a listen to this report. Global News anchor Julie Nolan. The Couch and Valley School District has launched an investigation this weekend after a safer snorting kit was left behind at one of their schools. Officials issued a statement today saying they were recently made aware of materials that were left at one of our school sites from a third party harm reduction and drug addiction presentation that we do not consider school or age appropriate. They added, we apologize to our community. The school district is not naming the school nor the third party group. Okay, there have been widely circulated photos of this safe snorting kit online. Like I said, there is a card in there to chop up your drugs. 
Uh, there are a couple of straws in, in sealed tubes in there. There's a couple of handy wipes and an instruction booklet on how to safely snort your drugs. Let's talk to John Rustad now, leader of the B.C. Conservative Party, MLA Nachaco Lakes. John, thanks for coming on today. Mike, thanks for having me on today. Yeah, you bet. Thanks a lot. I know you've been speaking out on this topic. You've got concerns about it. Tell me your thoughts on it. Well, both the government and political parties in this province seem to be promoting this idea of safe drugs. Uh, and hard, you know, illicit drugs are not safe. They can be very, very dangerous. And when I see a presentation like this in uh, in a high school, uh, you know, the organization that, that put this on, uh, I'm sure was well-meaning in terms of trying to prevent things like HIV um, and uh, and hepatitis. But they use drugs, they make drugs sound like they're they're popular, they're they're something that you know you should be trying and doing and here's how you can do it all nice and safe yeah this is just wrong like i mean kids are very impressionable we should we should be telling them the realities of these hard drugs that they are dangerous that they destroy lives not romanticizing it with the with the type of approach that's taken here and we take a look at the photos that have been circulated online of of this safe snorting kit it it does appear that there's a group in canada called Katy, which uh, stands for Community AIDS Treatment Information Exchange. This is an organization that's been around a long time, and it advocates for, for people to avoid getting AIDS, uh, hepatitis, and, you know, it, it, sound, it seems like maybe this is where this kit came from. And it, when you take a look at the instruction booklet, it's, it's got things in there like, you know, don't share your snorting equipment when you're snorting drugs like, what what kind of questions do you have for this school district and how this material ended up in a high school? Well, first of all, when you, when you have material that, you know, lists drugs and the various types of reactions that you get from the drugs, that describes how you need to, uh, you know, cut up and powder things like crystal meth before you snort it and talks about how you, you know, so switch from one nostril to the other. And then, oh, yes, don't forget to bring a condom with you because, you know, you may want to have sex when you're on drugs. I mean, I look at this material and I think, how did a school district not do a review yeah. of people and material that comes into school district? I mean, I was a school trustee back in 2002. And, you know, from my understanding, when there's going to be presentations in school, when the information comes in, there's supposed to be a process that the that the uh, administration go through. They look at the material, they make sure it meets standards, they make sure that people have, you know, safety checks, et cetera right before things like this come into school how on earth are we allowed for this just to come in and how is this sort of thing okay and funded by the federal government okay so the school district here in question on the island here is saying that they are doing an investigation and a a review and presumably these are some of the questions that will be asked do you feel that that the results of that review and in that investigation should be shared with the public Oh, definitely. Uh, and I think, quite frankly, uh, there should be a provincial review of uh, school districts around the province. When you look yeah. at uh, materials that are going into our school, uh, quite frankly, some of it is shocking. And I think if parents really saw what was going in there, they would be very, very surprised. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is something that should be made public. I think that school districts need to re- need to be able to uh, defend their policies about what information they feel is appropriate to bring into kids. And quite frankly, the government should be playing a role in making sure that that's being implemented. There's a growing reaction to some of the 
harm reduction measures that have been brought in by the provincial government, by the federal government, and we've had a lot of them recently. So we've got decriminalization of drug possession. So 2.5 grams is the legal possession limit in British Columbia now, the only province in Canada that has done this. It's legal to possess heroin, fentanyl, cocaine, crystal meth, all of these dangerous drugs. And the idea, government said, was to reduce the stigma of drug use and more people would be encouraged to get treatment. Instead, we've had this in place for several months now. We continue to see the overdose death rate go up instead. Is this a mistake that the province made here? I think it is absolutely a mistake. I've sat down and I've talked with some doctors that have specialized in mental health and addiction. Um, and it's very important to be able to have you know, an individual recovery program uh, for people that have been exposed or people that are addicted uh, to, um, uh, to these hard drugs. Um, and for government to come out and just say, well, it's legal to have this product and you know, it's okay, there's safe supply, it just sends the wrong messages, I think, in terms of society. Now, I don't think we should be running around you know, putting um, somebody in jail uh, because they they happen to um, uh, possess uh, drugs, uh, yeah. but at the same time, you know, as a society, what message are we sending to our kid, to our kids, to our youth? This is harmful. It you know, it doesn't take a lot of this sort of drug to be life altering to get to the place where an individual can't even function in society. And I just think you know, we're sending that wrong message. It is not safe. What are you hearing from community leaders in BC when it comes to? public drug use. I, mean, I had a, the mayor of Kelowna on the show last week who was very concerned about a spike in public drug use in playgrounds, parks, downtown streets in Kelowna ever since decriminalization was brought in. And he's not alone. I mean, we're hearing from many other communities saying we're seeing more disorder, we're seeing more public open drug use in public spaces, and we want the provincial government to do something about it. Your thoughts? Well, you know, you've got, you got the provincial government that calls into criminalization and says it's safe. You've got, you know, the, uh, the United Party that comes out and says, of course we support decriminalization and saying they support safe drugs. I, you know, I do not believe that drug use should be allowed in the public, period. It shouldn't be allowed on our streets. It shouldn't be allowed in our parks. It shouldn't be allowed in the beaches. Or, and it sure, certainly shouldn't be anywhere close to a school zone. I mean, that's, that should just be basic common sense about how we handle drugs. Um, you know, you're not allowed to, to drink a, a bottle of beer on the street, but you're allowed to do drugs. Uh, that just doesn't make any sense to me. And, and quite frankly, I think it is a uh, I think it is leading to, a, a, you know, a breakdown of our society. People don't feel safe on our streets anymore. We actually have to stop this and take back our streets and make it a place where people want to be able to yeah. go shopping. What about safe supply? I mean, you touched briefly on this as well. I mean, this has been introduced in British Columbia, and there, there are voices calling for it to be uh, greatly expanded as well. So the idea is when we take a look at this brutal overdose death epidemic we have, of you know, nearly seven people a day in our province are dying from toxic drug overdoses. So the idea is, well, people are dying from a, a like a poison, toxic street drug, illegal drug supply that's laced with with fentanyl. So the I, let's give them so-called safe drugs. These would be pharmaceutical grade, lab tested drugs that are measured out in tablets and in pre measured doses. Give that to people instead. So then if they're going to use anyway, 
at least they won't die from an overdose if they use these drugs. But now there, there, there's evidence of some of these drugs now being diverted, as it's called, and maybe ending up in the hands of young people. What do you think of that idea, safe supply? Well, I mean, like I say, I, I actually think it should be in the hands of a doctor to make a decision about what is best for a patient. Um, when you have um, somebody who's addicted, there, there are many people in our society that have addictions that doctors have prescribed um, you know, these alternative drugs um, for them so that they can function in society and, uh, and be able to, you know, as part of their, their path for recovery. But right. what we have seen is you've seen some of these drugs now that are being made broadly available. Uh, they don't have the high that, that many of the addicts are looking for. And so they'll take these drugs and they'll sell them. And unfortunately, these drugs are also addictive. And so yeah. you get these, these so-called safer drugs going out into population, particularly into, into, into the school environment, into the younger population. They start with these drugs, and then, of course, they start ramping up to these, to these other drugs. So, I mean, it, it, the whole approach here in our society, I think, needs to be, uh, needs, really needs to be rethought in terms of how, how do we drugs. How do we know that's happening, though, that that sort of diversion is happening, especially in any kind of great numbers? I mean, people who support safe supply are, are willing to admit, I've talked to, I've talked to advocates for safe supply who say, okay, well, we know that some of these drugs are being diverted and maybe ending up in the wrong hands, but it's not as big as the media is making it out or some opposition politicians are suggesting. It, there's a little bit of exaggeration going on. What do you think of that argument? Well, I still think when you're talking about this stuff, this any of these drugs are dangerous, and even the safe supply is what you know what is being called safe supply uh, can be addictive. And, you know, you just go across the border into Alberta. Um, in Alberta, uh, I'm continually hearing stories of drugs that are being made available in British Columbia, going across the border, being sold, and the money coming back to be able to provide harder drugs for people that want them. Um, you, and, mean, you, mean you, safe, know, you mean safe supply drugs from BC? That's correct. Are going to... Oh, whoa. Okay. That's correct. So, you know, this, when, you, when you think about what we're doing, um, you know, I, I just... You got to think about how we help people to recover, not how we help people to become addicted. All right, my guest is John Rustad, leader of the BC Conservative Party. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Brant on the line in Kelowna. Hi, go ahead. Hey, what's going on? It's good. Go ahead. I think uh, I think you guys got a lot of good points here. As, as a recovering addict, uh, you know, I used to. How, how I, I stayed sober was not going to these certain spots that the drugs were at and stuff like that. And now that it's legal, it's it's almost more accessible. So yeah, I, I, there's just there's a million different points on on all that's going on right now, and it's 100% wrong way to go about things. What, what do you th okay, Brand? I'm very grateful to you for calling in, and I'm glad you've been able to. To make some changes in your life there. Like, what do you think of the the decriminalization idea? Do you think that's a mistake? Yeah, it's crazy. This is absolutely stupid what they're doing. Like, I don't think they really realize how they're, how they're seriously going to affect all this stuff. Brent, thank you for calling in, man. I appreciate it. And I, I wish you well on your journey there. John... Uh, I mean, I talked to I talked to a, an official down in Portland on the show a few weeks ago, and they also brought in decrim. 
and he told me if he had a message for the people of BC, he said, don't do it. <laughs> because it says it has, yeah. hasn't worked out here. Your thoughts? Well, you know, and I'm really, I really appreciate the caller coming in, and it's, yeah. it's a very tough journey, uh, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of recovery, uh, because you're never fully over, you never sort of finish addiction. It's always an ongoing recovery, uh, and I think you know the the people that I know that have uh, uh, gone through recovery, that are in recovery, um, that are uh, they say the same thing. Um, they don't want to see it accessible. They don't want to see it around. The temptation is is huge and it's a problem. Uh, and they just think that, you know, we're taking the wrong approach. We're saying to people, yeah. it's okay to use drugs. Look, they'll be safe. That's yeah. just the wrong message. Val in Langley. Hi, Val. Go ahead. Hi. Thanks, gentlemen. Um, so I'm Val, former mayor of Langley City. Hmm. And unfortunately, I was one of the ones that brought in with FCM and voted and pushed to have the decriminalization done. And unfortunately, this ND government has done a really bad job of rolling it out. Um, I just totally agree with John in the fact that there needs to be medical, you know, professionals helping these people along the way, every step of the way. Why don't we have places set up for people to go into to be safe in? You know, all these mayors keep saying, you know, not in my backyard, but yet citizens don't want to see it on the street. So let's build yeah. facilities in every single community where people can go to and if they want to do their drugs they can do it safely and they can get the help and the support they need like it's it's not rocket scientists you know like vancouver has cleared out you know their downtown core which is great and the province has been helping them but everybody is going to all the other communities so we're left in the valley with all everything else to deal with Val, thank you very much for calling in. I appreciate it. we got more calls we can't get to. We'll just have to uh, do this topic again on a future show. Uh, John, thank you for coming on today. Thanks very much. And uh, the last caller, it's no question we need more facilities. Uh, Campbell River, for example, used to have six beds for recovery. Now it only has four. Uh, we need to be able to see an expanded opportunity okay. for people to be able to recover. Anyway, thanks for having me on, Mike. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's Best Hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Trends come, trends go, but style, that lasts. And this season, Lee's bringing iconic styles to you in fits that add a little spring to your step. Denim for all the days, chore coats that are anything but, and western shirts that snap on and take on whatever you do. We're talking gotta haves for everyone serious about their trip. These are styles born to be reworn now and for years to come. Visit lee.com, that's lee.com to shop spring now. Okay, here we go now. Have we reached the tipping point on tipping? Now, a lot of people have noticed that the tipping requests have gone up. If you go to more and more businesses, there is a request there to leave a tip. I got an oil change for my vehicle a few weeks ago, and there was a a tip prompt on there for oil change. Hadn't seen that before. Also, the amounts of suggested tips. 
have gone up as well. Used to be like, what, 15% was a good tip. Now you see a prompt for like 20%, 25%, 30% tip. Has it all gotten out of control? Got Mark Menser standing by to discuss. First, we're going to talk about a couple of viral social media posts on this topic. First of all, you've got the guy, you've got Holly in Vancouver on Reddit, in the Vancouver Reddit page. And I'm looking at her viral post here now. It says, I'm going back to tipping 10% in restaurants. I'm done. Inflation and pricing is getting out of control. I can't deal with 18 or 20% tip or 25% tip. Unless the food is exceptional, I'm tipping 10%. <laughs> that post went viral on Reddit. And then check this one out now. This is the one that's really getting a lot of attention. This is on TikTok. Okay, so this is TikTok user Sydney Littlefield. And she went into an ice cream parlor to buy a $2 ice cream cone. Have a listen to this. So I walk over to the counter and I was like, hi, can I just have a waffle cone? And she was like, yeah, sure, here you go. That'll be $2. So I was like, okay. I go to put my card in and of course the tipping screen comes up. And I was like, I'm, I'm not tipping you a dollar on a $2 cone that you just handed me. I'm not. So I hit no tip and the cashier goes to my, to my face. What were you expecting I tipped you to hand me a cone? Okay. Okay, so she buys a $2 ice cream cone, and there's a prompt there to add a $1 tip. A $1 tip on a $2 ice cream cone. And when she declined to add the tip, the cashier got upset. Let's discuss now with Mark Menser, now Professor of Human Resources, University of Saskatchewan. And I'm very pleased to welcome Mark back on this topic. Hey, Mark, thanks for coming on today. Good morning. That was quite a little storm on Reddit, wasn't it? Yeah, it certainly was. Let's start with that one now. So you've got this post here, Van local Vancouver Reddit user says, you know what, I am just done with this. I'm going to go back to tipping 10% for a restaurant meal. What do you think of that? I was surprised at the number of people on Reddit Vancouver saying they tip 10%. Uh, I'd say, really, for in-restaurant dining, 10% is, I think most people would consider that to be on the miserly side. Yeah. Uh, the average tip for in-restaurant dining in British Columbia is uh, 17% data from Restaurants Canada, the Trade Association. So 17% is the average. Some people tip less, some people tip more. 10%, I would say, really on the low side. But I understand the frustration. Yeah, I mean, that really lit a fire there on social media that went viral, as they say. And uh, 10%, yeah, I agree with you, that's that's pretty low. But and people are tipped out, right? Like they're just reached the tipping point on tipping, and you can't you can't blame people for feeling that way. Uh, it seems to be spreading to more and more transactions where tipping traditionally was not done. Uh, I, I blame these chip card readers. It's so handy just to uh, the business owner can program in whatever percentages they want. And, uh, you know, I think in some cases it, it backfires. The percentages can be so high that 
the customer starts thinking, gee, you know, I, I'm not going to use any of the preset buttons. I'm going to reconsider the whole concept of tipping. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it does sort of backlash there for sure. Like if you see a tip prompt there, okay, click here to leave a 25% tip. Or I, I think I've even seen like a 30% tip suggestion there. So you think like consumers could get their back up on that? It seems to be happening. I suppose the strategy of the business owners is if they have something like 17%, 25%, 30%, then 17% doesn't seem... You know, it, it seems like a low figure. Yeah. Um, I wonder how many people really tip 25% or 30%. Uh, still, I, I think it, it may cause more uh, harm than good in the business's relationship with its customers. Yeah. What do you think of this um, Sydney Littlefield? Now, this is the young woman who went into an ice cream parlor at Ben & Jerry's, bought a $2 ice cream cone, and then was tip- prompted to tip $1 on a $2 cone. What do you think of that? Is that excessive? I want to be sympathetic towards service workers, but a 50% tip, uh, no. Yeah. Yeah, and then she said, you know, okay, she decided to put in a zero, zero tip, and the, the cashier got upset and, and made, it, made it quite plain to the customer that she was unhappy not to get a tip. That kind of, that can cause a backlash too, can it? Yes. One of the things I noticed in this Reddit storm, and let's keep in mind, people who participate in Reddit are not necessarily typical representative people, but there's a number of uh, anecdotes in this Reddit storm about uh, um, servers getting upset, servers expressing anger. You know, that's, that's a little disturbing. I would hope managers would not tolerate that, but there seem to be a number of cases where people leave low tip, yeah. service employee gets angry. Boy, that's that's kind of disturbing. Yeah. Now, do you think it's also p- potentially evidence that people are underpaid by their employer? So if an, em- an employer says, well, I'm just going to add a tip prompt here at the cashier, and that way my employees can get a little bit more money and I don't, I don't have to pay them as much. Do you think that's going on? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's been true of tipping ever since tipping became commonplace in North America, say, in the 1920s. Employers looked at it as a way of getting more money in their employees' pockets without actually raising wages. So... Uh, Certainly, I, I think uh, restaurant owners want tips to be big. That means the employee will put less pressure on the business owner for higher wages. On the other hand, uh, you know, customers are feeling some financial pressure also. Yeah. Inflation, Vancouver's an expensive place to live. You know, not every restaurant customer has deep pockets. Right. So therefore, Mark, would you say, let's say you are a customer and you are having, you are feeling that kind of strain. I think most of us are. Would you, what would your advice be? Would you say, you know, don't feel guilted into leaving a tip? Like if you want to leave a lower tip or maybe even a, a zero tip, if you're just doing a picking up a takeout or you're, or you're getting like an oil change or something or that you never tipped before, don't be ashamed to not tip. It's such a personal decision. Uh, in my own life, I tip 15% for in-restaurant dining. 
if I'm picking up something at a counter where I'm doing carry out, I don't tip at all. But if people want to be more generous, I'd say tip what you want to tip. But yeah. don't be tip shamed by the stupid card chip reader. Don't let that device override your own judgment about sure. what's an appropriate tip. I think that's some good advice. Mark, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.